passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, if you're new, I'd like to welcome you to Crosswinds. It's great to have you on this wet and wild holiday weekend. The good news is the fireworks aren't going to burn anything down this week. The bad news is I hope you can get it lit. So uh, hopefully it's a lot of fun to have you here. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And as a church, we have been studying our way through the Ten Commandments, as you heard earlier. And one of the things we've come to the realization of is that we don't really do a good job of keeping God's commandments. Even though they're there for our good and they're there for our freedom, we break them all the time. And we looked at the fourth commandment. Remember that commandment about the fact we need a stop day, a, a Sabbath? But oftentimes, we don't take a stop day for rest and for work, but we're sort of addicted to getting things done. Next week, we're going to look at a, a commandment that deals with sexual fidelity and purity. Yet the honest truth is, who here doesn't struggle with lust? At the end of the series, we'll look at a commandment that deals with covetousness. You know, wanting other people's stuff. We have an entire industry in our country that's dedicated to cultivating the idea of covetousness. In fact, most of our mailbox and most of our inbox is filled with spam, all desired to create covetousness inside of each one of us. Today, we come to the sixth commandment, a commandment known as you shall not murder or do not murder. And I know what you're thinking. Instantly, there's a sense of relief. <sighs> Finally, a commandment I haven't broken. Murder. By the way, if you have broken it, we do have plainclothes police officers in the room. Just raise your hand. We'll take care of you after the service. Uh, no, but in all honesty, this is a commandment that we feel we haven't broken. We feel like we're doing pretty good on the do not murder one. But the problem is, is when we take the time to study this commandment and look at it a little deeper and find out what it really means, we discover that this commandment is probably the one commandment we break actually more than any others. You see, it's, a, it's one of the shortest commandments in the way of words, but it's one of the richest commandments in the way of meaning. And once we understand what it means, all of a sudden we'll realize how quickly we violated as we didn't, don't hold life as great sacredness and great value. So let's go ahead and take out your outlines. I'm going to read the commandment, and then we'll go ahead and get into our study of it. The commandment is this. You shall not murder. That sounds pretty simple. Now we're going to take some time to explain what does this commandment mean, and then we'll look at why did God give it, and then we're going to ultimately look at when can you, so to speak, violate it, and then we'll look at the other multiple ways that we violate it throughout our lives. So let's go ahead and jump in here. What does this commandment mean? The key word in this commandment is obviously the word murder. But if you've been around for a while and you are familiar with the King James, you know the King James actually translates this a little differently. I put that in your outlines for you. It says, thou shalt not kill. Then instantly you're faced with this challenge. Okay, which one is it? Should I not murder or should I not kill? Because there actually is a pretty big difference there. I mean, if you shouldn't kill, then what are you doing having a hamburger? 
You know, if you shouldn't kill, then obviously you shouldn't be ever be involved in war. If you shouldn't kill, you should be a pacifist and you should be completely against capital punishment at all times if you shouldn't kill. But the honest truth I want you to know is this. Uh, when it says thou shalt not kill, the word kill here is actually sort of a bad translation. I wanted you to realize that. It is. It just is a really bad one. It doesn't accurately convey the meaning of the Hebrew word that's behind it. See, in Hebrew, there are eight different words to describe killing. And they describe different kinds of killing, different reasons for killings. And um, the word that is used here is the Hebrew word ratzak. It is a very specific type of killing that is being talked about here. This word ratzak is never used to describe the killing of animals. So clearly it's not prohibiting the killing of animals. It's never used to describe the killing that takes place in war. So this is not prohibiting uh, killing in war. It's never used to describe the killing that takes place in capital punishment. So it's not uh, saying that capital punishment is something that should not ever take place. In fact, um, there is a word that the ESV and other modern translations use to translate this Hebrew word ratzak. It's the word murder. And murder is actually closer to what the Hebrew word ratzak means. So murder is actually a better translation. But I want you to understand, it actually also does not capture the full meaning of this Hebrew word. And so it also leads to some misunderstandings. And that being that as long as I don't actually physically murder somebody, I haven't violated this commandment. And that's just not true. Ratzak is any form of unlawful killing. It ranges from cold-blooded murder all the way down to death by negligence or simply death by carelessness. So it's a huge range of meaning. Essentially unlawful killing in any possible way it was done. So we're going to study a little bit more about this. First thing, why did God give us this command to say that uh, the, the unlawful taking of human life is so wrong? Number one, because man is created in God's image. The scriptures say this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you were to take animal life and you were to take human life and you were to like break it down to their chemical components, would they be pretty similar? Yes, they would be pretty similar if you broke them down to their chemical components. But God says there is a complete and big difference between animal life and human life. Only human life has been created in the very image and likeness of God. God. Animals are not that way. So what you need to think of it this way, I've heard somebody analogize it like this. God is a master painter. And God takes and he does a one-of-a-kind original artworks. And in these artworks, he pours himself into this artwork. So it completely images and it represents him. 
In fact, that's you and me, isn't it? This is what he's saying. Each one of us is a one-of-a-kind, original piece of artwork created by God into which he has poured his image. Nothing else in all creation is like that. So just as if you were to go into an art gallery filled with these one-of-a-kind original pieces of art and destroy those pieces of art, you don't just destroy those pieces of art, but you actually insult the artist who poured himself into them. And that's why the taking of human life is so incredibly wrong. Because each one of us is a -a one-of-a-kind, original piece of art made by God in his image to destroy human life is to assault and insult the painter, or should we say, the creator of human life. Because each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made in God's very image. Now, the result of that is the second point, and that is this. There is a vast chasm between plants and animals on one side compared to human life on the other side. Now, should we care for plants? Should we care for our animals? Should we care for fish and dogs and cats and whatever else you have running around your home? Of course we're to care for them. But the Bible says, you know what animals can be used for? Animals and be plants, they're to be used for food. They're to be used to serve you. You don't serve them. This is why we have hamburgers, because of cows. This is why we have bratwurst. Anybody like bratwurst? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for pigs. You know what I mean? Oh, totally good. Thank you, God, for giving us animals for food. And the scriptures say this. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But while we can eat animals, you know something? We cannot eat people. There is a vast chasm here. (laughs) Animals are not in the image of God. We are in the image of God. In fact, in this very same chapter, Genesis chapter 9, it says this. But for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man, there it is, in his own image. (laughs) So if you take human life, whether you're an animal or a person, your life should be taken, God says. And that's not because human life is cheap. Exactly the opposite. That is because human life is so incredibly valuable that the ultimate, um, how should we say it, the ultimate punishment is reserved for the ultimate crime. The taking of human life results in the taking of your life. And there's a vast chasm, as I've said before, that exists between plants and animals and human beings. But a lot of people don't recognize that chasm. In fact, instead of saying a vast chasm exists between Mankind and animals, they say a small evolutionary leap exists between animals and man. And this non-biblical thinking of a small evolutionary leap has resulted into a lot of problems. 
Like you see people out there, you know, save the animals, protect the whales, yet I'm pro-abortion. You see the problem there? Or um, this is physician-assisted suicide. Well, it's Jack Kevorkian. Remember him? And the, the thinking goes like this. You know, my dog gets old. My dog's not jumping around like he used to be. My dog's not enjoying life. So I take my dog to the vet and have my dog put down. Well, my grandmother's getting old. My grandmother's not enjoying life. Why shouldn't I be able to take her to the doctor and have her put down? After all, there's not much difference. We're just a little overly developed animal. You see how this idea, there's not a recognition here that there's a vast difference between animal kind and humankind, actually leads to the elevation of animals and the de-elevation of mankind. So the point is this. Uh, people are created in the image of God. And they're worth incre- they have incredible worth. Whether they are super young and still in the womb. Or super old in the nursing home. Whether they are super strong or super weak. Whether they're super smart. Or they're not that smart at all. They're still created in the image and likeness of God. That's why God says, we shall not take their life unlawfully. Now, let's look at this applications of this command. First of all, let's look at actually when we are allowed to take life. In fact, when God actually mandates that life should be taken. And the first situation I'd like to look at is this. Life can be taken in times of just war. Now, Christians have held different positions on war through the history of Christendom. There's a a position out there called pacifism, which says that because we're a Christian, we shouldn't be involved in war at all at any time. And I personally feel this is a non-biblical position. One of the reasons this is a non-biblical position is because the word ratzak in the Ten Commandments is not thou shalt not kill. Remember, it's closer to thou shalt not murder. It's saying it's only against the unlawful taking of human life. If you scan your finger through the Old Testament, you find many times God actually commands the taking of human life. You go to the book of Joshua, and God commands Joshua when he goes into the promised land actually to genocide the people of the land. And you say, God, how could you do that? Have your people take the life of those people. And then you continue your study, and you find out that this is actually a response by God to their sin. The people of the land were incredibly sinful, like throwing their child in the fire to burn them alive to Moloch. Like their worship involved prostitution. And God says, finally, enough is enough. And there was judgment for sin. And there was taking of life. And God says, one of the reasons there was taking of life is so their sin doesn't spread to others and their sin doesn't spread into the lives of my people. So sometimes there's the taking of life to stop the spread of sin. 
In fact, this is what often is behind the just war thinking that many theologians have talked about for years. For instance, an army's job is to protect the life of its citizens and to defend the weak and the helpless from evil oppressors. An army's job is to protect the life of their citizens and defend the weak and the helpless from evil oppressors. The United States went to war in World War II. There was a lot of life that was lost, but it wasn't gone. We didn't go to war randomly. There was Hitler, who was taking over Europe, who was genociding the Jews, who was trying to take over the war and take over the world. And our country went to war to protect the weak, protect the helpless, and to protect our citizens. This is the same thing that happened where our country went to war in Kuwait. Remember how Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait unprovoked? And our country and a coalition of nations went in to defend the weak and the helpless from an evil oppressor in Kuwait. It's just war. The taking of life is involved. Taking of life is never a good thing. It's never a desirable thing. But it's, it happens. This is what happened when our country went to war against Al-Qaeda. Remember when they flew planes into the World Trade Center and killed 3,000 U.S. citizens? An army's job is to protect its citizens. And part of that is it goes to war to protect its citizens and guarantee our freedom. Interestingly, in the Bible, uh, when John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance, there were some soldiers that came to him and said, what must me do to be right with, the, with God? And look what John says to them. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, well, just do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This was the perfect opportunity for John to say, well, you better get out of the army as fast as you can because, you know, in the army, you may have to kill somebody. He didn't say that, did he? Well, because the army's job was to protect and defend its people. The army's job is to defend the weak and the helpless. And John said, there's nothing wrong with that. Just don't extort money. Don't use your power wrongly. Well, we know that life can be taken in war by a country when it's a just war to defend the, the life of its people and to defend the, uh, the weak and the helpless. But also, life can be taken inside a country. Life can be taken in capital punishment. Instead of an evil outside aggressor, at this point we're talking about an evil inside aggressor. Remember what the scripture said in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood should be shed. That's not because life is so cheap, but because life is so incredibly valuable that the ultimate punishment is reserved for the ultimate crime, the taking of human life. Now the key thing to remember about this is the taking of human life in capital punishment is something the scripture always reserves for the government, not for the individual. When we get upset, when we get angry, when we think it's about time that somebody got even with somebody else, it is not 
our prerogative to take someone's life. That is a prerogative that God has delegated to the state. It is a state right, not an individual right to exact capital punishment. In fact, Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. It says, speaking of the state, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. A sword, by the way, is not there to tickle people. What is a sword used for? It is to take the life and to kill people. And obviously, at this point, we're talking about the government's job is to protect its citizens. And for those who have taken life, it's actually right that their life be taken. That is not revenge. That is not murder. When the government does that, that's actually called justice. In addition, one of the things you notice is when murderers are released back into public, what do they do again? Murder another person. And when murderers learn that murderers lose their life, are they, uh, do they think about murdering? Actually, they don't want to murder because they know that if they kill somebody, they will actually lose their own life. So we've seen that there are two ways so far that the scriptures say that actually the taking of life is not just acceptable by God, but even occasionally it's mandated by God. In war, where a country is to protect its citizens from evil, or even in capital punishment, where a country is to protect itself on the inside from those who are murderers. And number three, Life can actually be taken, it says, in self-defense. Now, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. I don't want to spend too much time on this other than to say the Bible does allow the taking of life in self-defense, but we have to be careful about that. Notice the situation here. Somebody breaks into your house, but at this point, the sun is up, and you discover all he wants to do is steal your GameCube, your video game console, and he's running out the house with your video games. Like, does that give you the right to kill him? Absolutely not. At that point, the person who owns the house is not considering human life valuable. But if the person breaks in, it's the middle of the night, you can't see what's going on, it's chaos, and you think your life is in danger, and you end up killing the person in the scuffle that follows, then it's acceptable to take human life because you're trying to defend the life of your family and yourself. So we've looked at when it's right to take life. Now let's go to the other side. When is it wrong to take life? And I want to tell you the procedure we're going to follow here. We're going to start with what are the really obvious situations, and then we're going to work our way down to situations that probably you and I don't think of. So let's start with the obvious ones. When is it wrong to take life? It's wrong to take life in murder. Now if you've been around for a while, uh, the chances are, that the idea of murder probably has crossed your mind. Because if you've been around for a while, you've learned that people can really deeply hurt you and they can hurt your family. 
I know people who have had um, just thousands upon thousands of dollars stolen from them. And they're so angry to have their life savings taken, stolen from them. They could just kill. There's people that have had um, their children who were innocent assaulted. And they're so angry they could kill. Their wife assaulted. They're so angry they should, they could just kill. We've learned, by the way, that's never our prerogative. The, the wheels of justice in the government turn slowly, but they do turn. It's the government's right, not our personal right. Also, the scriptures tell us this, that God is also in the business of carrying out justice, not just government. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But in our society, most people are not content to let God take care of justice. Most people are not content to let the state take care of handing out justice. Most people want to take justice into their own hands. That's why you have things like road rage. I'm tired of getting cut off in traffic. That's why you have gang killings and drive-by killings. And that's why you have things like you saw this past week in Annapolis, Maryland, where a guy says, you know, I'm tired of this situation. I'm going to take justice in my own hands and go into a newsroom with a shotgun. And life is held in low esteem and murder takes place. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever come come to this sense that you think like, that life is held in lower and lower esteem nowadays? That murder seems to take place, it feels like, more commonly than ever? Why is that? I want to float an idea by you, and you'll have to wrestle with this, whether you agree with me or not, but I think one of the reasons that life is held in such low esteem in our society is primarily because of the entertainment industry. Because if you think about it, most of the movies you watch are about people killing and getting even. Most of the television shows you watch, Blacklist, people killing and getting even. Video games are all about what are they doing? Killing and getting even. One of the statistics I ran across this past week talked about how by the time the average teenager is 18 years old, they have watched 40,000 murders, virtual murders on the television screen just by the average amount of television viewing they've seen. And what you role play in your mind slowly becomes what you real play in your life, especially when someone irritates you and angers you and gets under your skin. Anybody remember Rambo? But he drew first blood. Anybody remember Die Hard? yippee ki -yay. Let's go ahead and get even. Now, some of you may not agree with me. You think that virtual violence and actual violence are not connected. You know, that's just entertainment. I did some studies this past week, and I looked at some statistics. My favorite one is this. It was a study done of other studies. They surveyed a thousand studies that had looked at the link between virtual violence on the screen and actual violence in life. 
980 of the 1,000 studies surveys came to the conclusion that virtual violence begets actual violence in real life. That when someone hurts us, we respond by hurting them. And many times, it's elevated even to the point of murder. Now, to show you this in real life, do you guys remember Columbine High School? April 20th, 1999, Dylan Claybold, Eric Harris. Have you done some follow-up studies on what enabled them to do such a gruesome crime of mowing down their students? They were avid video game players. They were video game players of a game called Doom. Now, just so you know, there is a special version of that game called Doom that has been licensed to the U.S. Marines. Instead of killing demons on Mars, it's lifelike, real-like people. They had downloaded that game. They played that game. And in that game, you could actually upload scenarios. And they had uploaded the blueprints of Columbine High School. For one year before they actually attacked Columbine High School, they had been role-playing it out on a video game, a special video game, a two-player video game, where they had uh, set it up this way, that none of the people in the school had weapons, and they had unlimited ammunition. Does that sound like exactly what happened? What they role-played in their mind became what they real-played in their life. You see, when you don't hold human life sacred in your entertainment, it's real easy to not hold human life sacred in your actual life. Here's my challenge for you. My challenge is this. For the next two months, I challenge you for the honor and glory of God to cut out any form of entertainment that is glorifying the taking of human life. That means if you're going to watch a television show, and somebody's going to get murdered in it. I'm not going to do that for the rest of the summer. I'm going to watch a movie. And, you know, it's about shoot them up and high body count. I'm not going to go there. Even if your video games are about slaughtering human life, just take it away for the summer. And then in September, if you really want to go back, look at it again. And I think what you'll find is you'll be shocked in September because we've been so accustomed to taking human life and treating human life cheaply, that when we actually look at what it's like when we've been away from it again, we'll realize how cheaply we've taken it. So, the obvious big one is direct murder. Number two, let me move through this. It's wrong to take life in abortion. Just so you know, I think it's about 250,000 children are aborted each year in the United States. I could be wrong. I didn't quite get my statistics checked on that real well. Uh, But... The Bible is very clear that human life is sacred, even if it's in the womb. David, in Psalm 139, was speaking about where he could possibly go to to get away from God and how he couldn't go anywhere where God did not fully know him. And then he started saying this about, maybe God didn't know me when I was in my mother's womb. But then he said, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. 
that God knows every child completely and fully every single day of their life when they are still in their mother before they have seen the light of day. Human life is sacred in the womb. Another thing I should tell you, by the way, is in the uh, Bible, did you know there's no such word as fetus? There isn't. We use the word fetus because we say, well, that, that's a fetus. And once it's born, then finally it's a child, as if there is some distinction between life in utero and life out of utero. But the Bible sees absolutely no distinction between in utero life and out of utero life. The Old Testament word yelled for child is used to describe a child that is in the womb before it's born, and it's also the same word used to describe a child out of womb when it's not in the womb, but it's in the mother's arms. The New Testament word for child, the Greek word brephos, is used to describe a child once again in the womb and also in a mother's arms. In other words, there is no difference between a child that is in their mother and out of their mother other than location when the scripture speaks about that. So preborn life is sacred. You even find this in the Old Testament law. Look at this one. It's one of my favorite ones. When men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman so that her child come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. But the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. If a pregnant woman is hit by a man and her child dies, that man who hit her shall die because he has committed murder. Because taking a child in utero is murder, which really is a scary thing if you're an abortion doctor. Because that's exactly what the God says. Number three, it's wrong to take life in euthanasia. Euthanasia is the taking out of society those who are deemed less valuable in society. Uh, like the, one of the more popular guys in euthanasia was Hitler. Remember how Hitler said, let's get rid of the Jews, let's get rid of the gypsies, let's get rid of the homosexuals, let's get rid of anyone who has a birth defect or a deformity or Down syndrome. That's the idea of taking of those lives. But once again, they're all still made in the image and value of God. Now, euthanasia is not seen so much today in the taking of the lives of Jews and gypsies, but it's seen primarily today in the idea of taking the life of the elderly because they're deemed less valuable. In fact, in Netherlands right now, they take the life of the elderly. There's a big push there. It's a, they should... It's called die with dignity, have the right to die. When you have deemed that your life is no longer filled with joy and purpose and meaning, then you go to the doctor and you set an appointment and they give you a shot and you die. But what people have noticed is, by the way, this right to die has started to turn in a, uh, into an uh, obligation to die as someone gets older. And that even family members, rather than caring for their elderly parents, have begun to push for their elderly parents to off themselves. And this is completely against what the Bible says. 
Because remember, no matter how young someone is, whether they're in the womb, or no matter how old someone is, whether in the wheelchair, they still carry the image and likeness of God. We've talked about the taking of life at the beginning and the end. Let's talk about the taking of life in the middle. This is called suicide. Suicide, by the way, is something that uh, many people struggle with. In fact, it's the third most likely cause of death for those who are under 24 years of age. And if you are here this morning and you have thought to yourself, maybe this world would be better off without me, you need to hear this. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You are not the one who gave yourself life and you do not have the right to take away your life. God is the one who has given you life. And when God has determined that, he, that you are done, he will take you home. And to think that we have the right to take our own life is not to realize that we have been made with the image of God planted in us. And to take our life is not just to take our life, it's to assault God who gave us life. In fact, in the scriptures, every single time suicide is talked about, it's talked about negatively, never positively. Whether that's Saul in the Old Testament or Judas in the New Testament. We do not take life. Well, we talked about the taking of life in ways that are obvious, like physical death. But remember, this word has a much wider range of meaning. And it extends into death that is not necessarily intentional. So let's look at some of those areas. It's wrong to take life through carelessness. Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 says this, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. The idea in the ancient world is that people had mud, brick houses. It's really hot, by the way, in that part of the world. They don't have air conditioning. You do not want to go in your house in the evening after a long day's work. It is roughly akin to an oven. So where did people go? They had flat roofs. They went onto the roof where there was a breeze and it was cool. So you built a house, you had a flat roof, you invited your neighbors over, but you didn't put a parapet around it. And by the way, what's a parapet? It's not a parakeet. It's a parapet. A parapet is a railing. It's a fence. If you don't put a fence around the edge of your roof of your house and somebody falls from it because you are trying to save money instead of trying to save life, you're guilty of murder. You're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment because you valued saving money over saving life. It was death through carelessness. Let me uh, look at this next one. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past and its owner has been warned, but he's not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner shall be put to death. In other words, if you knew that your ox is in the habit of attacking people and you did nothing about it, guess who's guilty of murder? You are. Because you didn't take steps to protect human life. 
you violated the sixth commandment. By the way, this is why we have work zones. This is why they tape areas off with caution tape. This is why if you are an employee and you have hard hats, this is why people wear safety equipment. This is why there is building codes. This is why there are fire hydrants. This is why our buildings have sprinkler systems. This is all to protect human life. Because to build things or to do things and not protect human life is actually to violate the sixth commandment and to be guilty of murder if somebody dies. Number six, it's wrong to take life or the life of others through recklessness. We don't just have to make sure we protect the life of others, but we have to make sure we protect our own life as well. Because it's not just other people that are made in the image of God, but folks, it's you and me. We're made in the image of God as well. This means like drinking and driving. It's a direct violation of the sixth commandment because you're not holding human life, your own and other people's, in high value. Texting and driving, a violation of the sixth commandment. You're not holding your life and the life of other people in high value. You guys have ever been on YouTube? You know there's a lot of people that are young kids on YouTube that will do insane and crazy stunts. They'll go like hang off the edge of buildings by just their fingertips so their friend can videotape it with a GoPro so they can get lots of likes and lots of views. Direct violation of the sixth commandment. They're being reckless and not protecting their life, which is made in the image of God. People who climb bridges with a selfie stick, hang off the edge of a bridge, putting their life in danger. Direct violation of the sixth commandment by not holding their life sacred. And then it gets more personal. Did you know it's wrong to take life through hatred and even verbal abuse, not just physical abuse? Matthew, Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, fire, the hell of fire. Or in 1 John, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When we have people that really get under our skin and we get completely frustrated with them, and we start to hate them in our heart. Where are we killing them? We haven't killed them yet with our hands, but we started to murder them in our hearts. It's a violation of the six commands. And then after we've hated them for a while in our heart, we have that opportunity to have a verbal exchange with them. And what do we do? We tear them up and we rip them down. We kill them with our words. Jesus says, guess what? That's actually a violation of the sixth commandment too. Now let me finish it up with these thoughts. Jesus takes this commandment and he totally flips it. Instead of focusing on this commandment being about the taking of life, he says the true spirit of this commandment is actually about us giving life. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and left him half dead. 
was a terrible crime. He had been violated the sixth commandment. They stripped him, they beat him, and they left him half dead. But two upstanding citizens passed by that way. And what did they do? By now, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Priests and Levites were good, upstanding, godly people. But when they saw a man desperately in need, they made an excuse to pass by on the other side and not to help. What Jesus is saying is this. Sometimes to break the sixth commandment, it's not to actively go out of our way to take life. It's not to actively go out of our way when we see someone in need to give life. And the story ends this way. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. The Samaritan went out of his way to give life to his enemy. The Samaritan went out of his way to be just like Jesus. Isn't that true? Jesus didn't come to take life, but he saw us in need when we were his enemies. And he came and he gave us life at great personal cost to him. Jesus is challenged when it comes to applying this commandment is that we would do the same thing. We would see people when they're in need. We'd go out of our way to give them life and to help them, even if they're our enemies, just like he did for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to admit that so many times we treat life carelessly. We treat our own life recklessly. When it comes to our words and our hearts, we're often filled with hatred. and We say hurtful and mean and terrible things, and we violate this commandment. But I pray that you would help us to be just like Jesus in our everyday world, that we wouldn't be people who take life, but be people who are known for giving life to others who are in need, even those who are enemies. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.